Lord, that you would open your word to our understanding, that you would bring conviction and encouragement and hope as we consider the word together today. We acknowledge before you our failings, our weaknesses, but we praise you for the great high priest who has no weakness and no sin. We praise you for the privilege to gather before the Word as an assembly and pray that you, by your Spirit, would bring about great good and sanctification. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ as Savior and pray that you would draw them to the light of the Gospel, even through the text that is before us here. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Romans 3.10 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. The universality of sin and the certain judgment in death is an unwelcome thought in our day. These are not things that people line up to hear. But as God's people, we know that all people break God's law. We know that all people die. And we sigh. It's a heaviness to our heart. There's no truth in which we take delight. It's just the reality of our world. It's a reality that we must teach our children. And I rejoice to know that we're in a church that does not hesitate to do so. Years ago, one of those little children lived in my home. One of my boys, he was maybe three to four years old. So still putting words together. And he shared with me what he was learning in Sunday school, unsolicited. Out of nowhere, this little tyke announced to me one day, everyone does sin, even you, Dad. I kind of stood there speechless trying to figure out what the point of this was. And he, I, apparently I delayed too long and he said, right, Dad? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Bible class teachers, for a good job. Um, but seriously, what an important moment. A moment of truth between the two of us. Yes, son, that's right. Even Dad sins. Everyone sins. All people die, and we sigh. Such a heavy sigh hangs like a cloud over Numbers chapter 20. There's not a lot of light here. I think there's some rays that begin to poke out of, this, of these narratives that are before us, these four episodes that we will encounter here in chapter 20. But as we just get our bearings a bit, as we come to chapter 20, Israel is starting on the move to the promised land. We have considered their journey in theater chapter, or theater number one at Mount Sinai, and then a journey onto the region of Paran. These circles are not particularly uh, accurate, just kind of giving an idea of the journey northward to the promised land. And now uh, stationed at Kadesh, they are going to make their way east and north to the other side of the promised land across Jordan. So tracking now through the Pentateuch, through to Numbers, 
in Exodus. There was the journey across the Red Sea, leaving Egypt and camping at Mount Sinai where the law was given to Moses. And then they set out on journey and made their way eventually to the southern border of this promised land. And you remember the uh, spies moving up through the land from south to north and then returning back and giving the report. It's a land of great fertility. There's so much that is there that is wonderful, but it's a land we cannot conquer. And this distrust in God leads to a rebellion on the part of the people in fear and unwillingness to trust the Lord. Forty years now they've been in the wilderness. That generation that refused to enter the land dying off. And now they work their way eastward and will work their way then northward to the other side of Jordan across in the Transjordan Tablelands, looking across to this promised land. That's where they're beginning to move now as we come to chapter 20. But as we look at this chapter and just get a sense of its literary layout, we have, in a sense, two bookends. The first bookend is the death of Miriam in verse 1, the sister of Moses and Aaron. And then the other bookend at the other end of, of the, chap- the end of the chapter is the death of Aaron. So these two deaths of these primary leaders of Israel is significant. In between, there's a death sentence that's passed on Moses. So this chapter is death, death, death. And there is one more insertion here, and that is an episode of a tragic, uh, nasty encounter with the nation of Edom. These two interior episodes, the judgment of Moses and the situation with Edom, are sandwiched there between the two death narratives and I think are linked, what we'll see, by a theme of water. But it's all futility and darkness and death. There is, however, for us as we consider this chapter, a ray of hope that begins to emerge. And Israel, in fact, begins to move forward from this place as they make their way to obey God and take the land that He's given to them. But let's consider then, first of all, that first episode of the death of Miriam in verse 1. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kedesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So the nation now encamped near the southern border of the promised land in this first month, that is the first month of the 40th year after Israel has, has left Egypt. So the time is really drawing very near for the nation to enter the promised land. Which means, again, that the generation that refused to enter the land, chapters 13 and 14, those listed in the census who were over 20 years of age, is nearly extinct. It's been a really bad four decades. People have been falling in the desert at rapid pace, many of them executed by God in judgment on, on, in a very short period of time because of their rebellion. And it's a sad note that Miriam succumbs to this same judgment. You remember chapter 12, where she rebels against the leadership of Moses, along with Aaron. After God disciplines her in that episode, and Israel stopping their journey to the promised land, 
because they have to wait for her healing, uh, for, for her purification after her healing uh, from leprosy. We never hear about Miriam again. She completely falls out of the text as if to say she's been set on ice. She is no longer a part of the story until we now bury her in verse 1 of chapter 20. She's laid to rest in the desert along with the rebellious generation, never to see the promised land. The episode that follows finds Israel once again grumbling with God. and It's almost as if they're, they're, it's repeated so often that we begin to get used to their grumbling. It's like, yes, this is probably what comes next, is grumbling. As Miriam dies, that's the next stage, getting water the wrong way uh, through their grumbling. Verse 2, now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Here we are again, Exodus 17, God provides water from an outcropping of rock on the journey from Egypt to Sinai, he'll do so again here, that all that Israel seems to learn from history is that she learns nothing from history. Once again, the people spew bitter, hissing complaints at Moses you're bringing us where we don't want to be. And they go so far as to identify with the people God had judged in chapter 16 and verse 49. It's as if they are begging God to take them out here as they complain again. All they can do is pine for Egypt, which they left as fast as their little feet could carry them when given the chance. And all they can do is pine for grain and figs and vines and pomegranates in Canaan, which they refuse to enter when given the chance. But to the main point here, verse 5, there's no water to, to drink. And that indeed is a problem. But it's how Israel responds that is the bigger problem. They respond by denouncing God and lashing out against his leader, Moses. Moses is leading them just as they should be led. He is doing what is right and what is good for them. But they just look at him as the enemy. And they lash out at him because they're lashing out at God. Well, if you're tracking with the history of Exodus through Numbers, you can easily predict verse 6. We've been here before. We know how this goes. We know what they'll do. We're really getting to know these people. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Here we go again. The priests interceding, God coming in His glory and what we anticipate is judgment. As good priests 
standing between God and his people, pleading for his mercy. Here in the text is where we've seen it before. God will threaten judgment and answer the cry of the priests. But that's not what happens. There's a reordering of these journey narratives here. We read that God appears in verse 6. His glory appears. He comes to make His presence known among the people. And the Lord, said, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 8, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. The staff, I I think that's probably Aaron's staff that budded now in the Holy of Holies because it's described in verse 9 as being before the Lord. That's probably the staff that he's talking about. So the staff representing God's election of Aaron as high priest. The staff reminding Israel of Moses' authority to lead the nation. It's retrieved from the tabernacle. With that staff in hand, Moses and Aaron approach an outcropping of rock. When they talk about a rock here, don't think of one you hold in your hand. Don't think of a boulder either, but something maybe like this in the, in the uh, ahead of this journey. Uh, something like that, an outcropping of rock, a large rock around which the congregation can assemble, this massive group of people. But the instructions from God here are rather clear. They must speak to the rock and God will supply the nation with water. It is a promise. And again, we say, now wait a minute. God seems to have broken the pattern. He does not, as is now the established pattern, threaten to judge Israel, he moves directly to supplying. You remember when he gave them food, when he gave them the quail to eat, first came the threat of judgment. Then came the intermediating work of the priest, and then the blessing of God and warnings to follow. But here he just moves right to blessing. He simply proposes to provide water. And I don't know, perhaps that frustrated Moses. It was God's job to rebuke the nation here. It was Moses' job to intercede. But God seems to have skipped the part about rebuking the the rebels in this nation. God goes straight to mercy, which of course is his prerogative. But it seems to leave Moses in an agitated spot. Verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and Moses said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Oh, the heights to which Moses' faithfulness had taken him as a leader of God's people these 40 years. 
He stood forward as a general and led the entire nation out of Egypt, escaping the most powerful army on the planet, leading the people through the Red Sea. This singular man. And he stood forward as a prophet at Mount Sinai and received the law of God and took that word, that law from the very face of God and brought it to the people and explained it. And as a priest interceding before God for the nation in their wilderness wanderings, meeting with God face to face at the tabernacle, What man in Scripture has risen so high and led so well and done so much for God? Moses had faithfully served him now in the wilderness here for 40 years. If we have any question of the significance of Moses in salvation history, remember that at the transfiguration of Christ, only two people came back to speak with Christ there, and one of them was Moses along with Elijah. The heights to which he has risen. But everyone does sin. Everyone. In a moment of weakness, this great man of God inexplicably joined the rebellion. Not in the same way, not for the same reasons, not that sense, but he joins the rebellion here. I think his sin is at least threefold. First of all, he issued a rebuke to the nation which God did not send him to deliver. What he said in his rebuke of Israel was absolutely true. They were rebelling against God, but God did not send him with that message. The problem is that he spoke with bitter anger. We're reading a bit into the text. We need to be cautious there. But it seems as if he is saying, if God's not going to rebuke these people, I will. But God didn't send him with that message. Support for this we find in Psalm 106. They angered Moses at the waters of Meribah. And it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. The message was right, but the calling was not there at this moment. He stood out and said, God, I'll do your job if you're not going to do it. Secondly, Moses exalted himself as the one who could miraculously produce water from the rock. He says here, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And I think that's significant, particularly when we put it together with past experience. Moses could no more produce water out of this rock than he could split the Red Sea. But we think about his words at the Red Sea, and they were this, Moses crying out to the petrified people of God. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. We're in a very bad spot. We're pinned 
against the Red Sea. The most powerful army on earth coming at us to execute us here in the desert. But God will deliver. Watch him do it. That's where Moses stood there. Where is he standing now? He says, stand back and see the salvation that I will bring about. We could applaud his confidence of knowing that he was an instrument in God's hand and that no miracle was beyond the power of God. But the way he puts it here is, first, angry rebuke. And second, focusing on himself as God's instrument rather than focusing on the power of God through his instrument. And then I think his sin, thirdly, is that he struck the rock twice rather than speaking to it. Moses sinned here, I think, by failing to follow God's instructions. Very simply, God says, speak, and he strikes. I think that's wrong. However, I think that Moses' sin may go far deeper than he could possibly have ever understood. And this is one of the ugly truths about sin. When we choose to go our own way, when we choose to break God's law and work life out on our terms, we often do much more damage than we ever recognize. What was the damage that Moses does here? I realize this is a bit speculative, it's a bit meditation on my part and part of others, but follow me with this. I think we think through, first of all, 1 Corinthians 10, which we've looked at earlier. In that passage, we are told that the ledge of rock was a picture of Christ. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So as Paul looks back on this Old Testament account, seeing that rock, he says that represents Jesus. They are gaining sustenance, water, pointing to the living water of Christ in the desert. There's a work of God in salvation here, typologically worked out. Moses strikes the rock once in Exodus chapter 17, according to God's direction. And I think there is there a picture of the death of Christ, perhaps, that then yields the water of life to God's people. The Savior is struck once. The life flows to the people. So it's possible then that when Moses struck the rock twice, he fractured the typological purpose of the event. That was a truth God only understood. I don't think he knew what he was doing there. But what is more certain in my mind is that Moses was to speak to the rock demonstrating that God's word is life itself. That it is the Word of God that brings the water of life to His people. What a tragic moment this is as he breaks that typology. As he fails to represent God and as he draws attention to himself. What a tragic moment. Moses is guilty of unjust anger. He is guilty of pride. He disobeys the Lord and we sigh. How utterly discouraging to see this great man of God fall in this way. In that moment, he became a rebellious man and a dead man. 
Now let's just take a quick sideline here and consider for a moment. Let's also realize God blessed his ministry. God blessed Moses' ministry. He got water to flow to the people. But he was also severely judged. And I think it'd be wise for us always to remember, to have this category in our mind, to remember in ministry, the fact that something works in ministry or seems to accomplish good in a church is never the final verdict. The final verdict is whether we have proven faithful to God, whether we have sought to conform in every way to the wisdom and to the purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of His church. So Moses succeeded in gaining positive results, but he failed to honor God. And that's made so clear in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Can you imagine the shock that ripped through Moses and Aaron's soul and the horror that gripped them right in that moment? I'm sure their body tingled with the rebuke. Their crowning achievement in life was to be that day when they stood in the promised land, basking in God's gracious provision. In that day, as that day neared, I imagine they talked about it. How could they not? The 40 years were almost over. Brother, the time is drawing near. This is the last year of wilderness living. Can you imagine just a few short years from now as we are Gaining, eating the abundance of the land as the people come to the place that God has chosen, bringing their sacrifices. And we eat meals of celebration with wonderful food in the presence of God's people. Oh, that day's coming, Moses. That day's coming, Aaron. Brother, we're soon to be there. But the dream was now dead. They had fallen out of the race on the home stretch, and unbelief was their undoing. Sin is so horrible. It does no good in anyone's life, and it cancels blessing. So verse 13, these are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. How sad. This should be a, have a whole different name. Not the waters of quarreling. They should have been remembering here the waters of God's gracious provision. God showed Himself holy here in that only God could supply water in the desert by miraculous means. But this place where God did that for them was not remembered by the provision of God so much as it was remembered by their sin. Sin is so ugly. It ruins things. Only God can identify the rock that will produce the water of life. Only He can bring that about. Now, the episode to follow may seem to be nothing more than the next stage of the journey, but I believe the thematic emphasis upon water links the purpose here to what precedes. So Moses is now an impotent leader. 
He is incapable of really getting things done under the blessing of God because of his sin. That won't be the entirety of his life in these next few months, but it will be certainly the case here. We see in this episode then a further proof that no matter how great Moses was as a leader, he cannot produce water, not by miraculous means, verse 10, and not by diplomatic means. What now follows? God does not bless Moses in that way. And he is, thirdly here, denied water by the wrong people. Verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Eden, Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that we have met how our fathers went down to Egypt. We lived in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to Yahweh, He heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. So he, Israel takes now the first steps toward the promised land. And he, Moses speaks to his brother here. That is, Esau, the patriarch of Edom, as Jacob's twin brother, is the patriarch of the nation of Israel. So we are brothers. Appealing to this family connection. We, we should say here, by the way, in the conquest, Israel is not hell-bent on destroying everyone. Here they are only capturing the land that God has given them and serving as his sword to bring just punishment to the Canaanites. They're not seeking to take out whoever gets in their way. And here they treat Edom in a very brotherly manner. They need to get through their land. That's the fastest way through, the most direct way through. Edom is the best route. And so, verse 17, please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from the well. From a well. We will go along the king's highway. It was a major route north to south in the tablelands of the Transjordan. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Now notice here again the emphasis upon water. I think it's significant. What will Edom say? Will Moses secure passage and water for the journeying nation? Will he be successful in his endeavor? Verse 18, but Edom said to him, you shall not pass through, lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, we will go up by the highway. So I think here is now a second appeal. So the messengers go, it takes some time to get there and to come back. Now a second message is passed, possibly as Israel's on their way. In journey, but verse 19, the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Again, the emphasis on water. Again, Edom resists. Verse 20, but he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. That is, Israel has to skirt Edom and add to their miseries 
as they make their way to the promised land. There's a lot going on here in the relationship between these two nations and much more to come, and it's all pretty ugly. But I think the significance of placing this narrative here, it's certainly a part of the journey northward to the promised land, but I think it is an indication that Moses can't get water the right way no matter what he does. He can't produce it miraculously. He disobeys God in providing water for the nation. And here, his diplomacy fails because he lacks the blessing of God. It certainly is a cause for the judgment of Edom to come, but it's also an indication of where Moses is at in the situation. Now that other bookend of death, as we come to the death of Aaron. And they journeyed from Kadesh, and the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came to Mount Hor. So they're skirting Edom, and they come to this mountain. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor, on the border of the land of Edom, let Aaron be gathered to his people. That means it's time for Aaron to die. For he shall not enter the land that I have given to the people of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Aaron will die with the rebels due to his sin against God, taking glory for himself, rebuking the nation apart from God's grant, and drawing glory to himself as the one who with Moses could bring forth water. It's a somber scene. Verse 25, Take Aaron and Eliezer his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments. And put them on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. And they went up Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Can you see it? The nation watching as the three fade into the distance, trekking up Mount Hor. Three will go up. Two will come back. Israel's first high priest fades away, never to be seen again. And Moses, verse 28, strips Aaron of his garments and puts them on Eliezer, his son. There's a type of defrocking that takes place here. I imagine that there was a somber moment with regret and guilt, with bitter sorrow, with a Painful finality, Moses strips the holy garments off of Aaron. And then verse 28, they're put on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron dies there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. God has chosen another high priest. And in that, very subtly, there is a ray of hope. Aaron sins. He fails the Lord, but God has a purpose here and places a new high priest in order. So Moses and Elise are descending the mountain, three going up, two returning to the camp. We read verse 29 that when all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. This is an unusually lengthy period of time to mourn a death. And it's a symbol of the reverence afforded to Aaron as the high priest. 
The nation complained bitterly against his leadership. They didn't want it. They despised him and the authority that he had. But death has a way of bringing reality to bear. And they do recognize, in the end, his significance to the nation. There was that ugly revolt to unseat him in chapter 16. But death bringing perspective, Aaron's death reminds them of the last remaining Israelites that their time will soon come. A new day is dawning, however. A new generation that will have opportunity to believe God's promises and enter the land in faith. There's a new priest now. The priesthood did not end with the death of Aaron. The priesthood continues and passed on to Eliezer, and in that there is great hope. As we work through this dark chapter, we're left longing for a high priest who never sins and never dies. As we gather on this Lord's Day singing God's praises, we praise Him for giving us just such a high priest. As God's people, we're not journeying around in circles in the desert, bearing a disobedient priest. For us, gathered here in this place, the investiture of Eliezer points us forward to a better high priest. And now on this side of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands our humanity, and our fallenness. Remember how the text of Hebrews 4 put it? As the God-man in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God pointing us through the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of the one who never sinned. Miriam... Aaron, Moses, remind us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They remind us in these somber narratives that the wages of sin is death. But as their failures remind us of our own sin and humanity, they also point us forward to the final high priest who suffered as the Lamb of God, who stood in the place of sinners between the living and the dead and took our death, our judgment, our punishment, and paid the full price of our sin. Jesus, our rock, was struck once. He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, Hebrews 10 says. And then, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of God. For, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 14 of Hebrews 10. Sanctified. Made holy by the work of of our holy priest. Now sanctified, made holy as God's people certainly does not mean for us that we are without sin. We don't take that away from this text. We continue to sin. We continue to fail. We continue to walk in darkness. But there is a sanctification project that Jesus has started when he said it is finished. He won our redemption. There at the cross he broke the power of sin, in His resurrection, defeating death and judgment and sin as He took it all on Himself 
for His people. And now, through trust in His Word, in the life-giving message of the Gospel, we drink of the water of life that wells up within the presence of the Holy Spirit who gives us that water of life. Now, we can say, even in light of a passage like this, even with the full acknowledgement that everyone does sin, we all die because of our sin. We can say with Romans 8 and verse 1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I identify with the sinners here. I identify with death and will someday meet the Lord that way. Barring His return. But we can say now, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This passage is a tremendous reality check for us. My sin, my death, they're a real thing. But my deliverance from sin is also a real thing. And that's the Christian life. It's not trust in a man. Israel could not in the end trust in Moses. They could not in the end trust in Aaron they found them also to be rebels against the will of God in their own strength. But as the narrative unfolds, Moses plows on. He does demonstrate trust in God moving forward. But God sends this very difficult message that our hope is not in flesh and blood. Our hope is not in individuals. Our hope is in the one who was struck for us and gives the water of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So believers, here we are, gathered today, singing, rejoicing, building each other up in our faith, realizing that we are not in that wilderness. But by faith, we are in the promised land, enjoying the blessings God has provided in Christ, praising God, our hope is in Christ, our great high priest. Our confidence is in His future deliverance that He won for us on the cross. And our message to a lost and dying world is to be this. Jesus crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sin. All sin, the wages of sin is death. And that full wage was paid for God's people on the cross. This is the message to a lost and dying world. May God pour out His grace upon that message through our lips and pour out His grace upon the transformation of this message in our lives to know this is our high priest, not a sinner, one who has defeated death. And so for those of you gathered who do not know Christ in a personal way, have not come to saving faith in what Christ has provided, don't join the rebellion. Don't stay with it but come to this singular death by this singular high priest who gives to his people eternal life, not because of who you are, but because of what he has done. Embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. Trust his resurrection power. Trust his promises to bring you all the way home by His grace. This sinless advocate can come between you and judgment. Not responding to your performance, but giving you life in His name as you trust Him. I encourage you, come 
to faith in Christ today. Father, we pray that you'd bring it about and do within our hearts a work that we cannot do ourselves. I pray that you would help us all to come to terms with our sin, with the cost of rescue, with your faithfulness to us in Christ. Bring to saving faith those around us who surround us and with us here today. For those who surround us in our daily lives, may we proclaim Christ crucified and risen. And may we rejoice in our great high priest, in whose name we pray. Amen. I would invite you to stand. And I'm going to give us a moment for silent reflection and just prayer.